voice is a bit loud in the sanctuary. So, uh, okay, I'm going to get ready to turn on our live stream here uh, for the sermon. Uh, while I'm doing that, you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 14 and Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Luke 14 and Philippians 2. We're turning now to Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 to 35, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 24. get there eventually. There we go. Starting with verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to start with verse 19. Paul is writing here and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Over the last number of weeks, we've talked a lot about 
what is happening in our world, what was happening with the pandemic. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks talking about the economy and how the economy has been shifting uh, during this time. And we all know that uh, economically, uh, our nation is, uh, our world are fa is facing great, great challenges. Uh, we've been talking here the last number of weeks about how we as the church can regain our disruptive influence in society, being disruptive for the good, not disruptive for the bad, being disruptive for the kingdom of God, not being disruptive just for ourselves uh, so that somehow we might have our own way. And uh, a lot of people have been wrestling uh, in, in society, in our world, about how do we deal with the issues that we're facing. And, and a lot of people have been wrestling here recently about the economy. And uh, I've been doing a lot of reading, as I'm assuming many of you have been doing, and I came across this interview with a guy named Paul Romer. Now, Paul Romer, you may or may not know that name. He is an American, but he, uh, a few years ago, won the Nobel Prize for economics. So a reasonably intelligent guy. And he was sharing a bit of his vision uh, for what needs to happen and the realization that we are not going back to the way things were. That no matter what happens, uh, we can't just rebuild society and rebuild our economy. And even I would say rebuild our churches on the basis that they were being built before the pandemic hit the world. Uh, this is rather nothing un, uh, unusual. Uh, every major pandemic throughout history has had this kind of effect in society. But during this interview with Paul Romer, I was really caught by something he said, and I thought it was really, really powerful, um, uh, a powerful revelation, if you will, that a lot of times people don't acknowledge. Uh, he was talking about mainstream economic uh, academia. So he's talking about people who are writing about economics, who are teaching about economics, who are working on theories of economics, all of whom are, are talking about ways that we might recover. And he noted that mainstream economic academia mostly focuses on, I quote, material gains and emphasizes on the value of selfishness. The notion that people being selfish will, by the invisible hand, uh, and now this is me, the whole economic theory uh, is based on the idea that there will be this, this invisible hand that will guide economics. And you know, as Christians, we probably agree with that. The key is, is that invisible hand gonna be the invisible hand of God or is it gonna be the invisible hand of Satan? That's a big question. So going back to him, uh, the, it focuses on material gains and emphasizes the value of selfishness, the notion that people being selfish will, by the invisible hand, lead to good outcomes in terms of material gain. In other words, all of economic theory today is based on sinful selfishness of human beings. Isn't that fascinating? Even, you might have even noticed the interview with, uh, with uh, uh, the Prime Minister where I think he said, now people go out and spend, spend, spend. 
Uh, and Romer says this, he says, I think that model of what leads to a good society is too narrow. Can I get an amen? Because I certainly agree with that. If we build a society, if we build a world, if we build an economy on selfishness, that model of economics is always going to be too narrow. It is always going to be inherently flawed and will never ultimately lead to genuinely beneficial outcomes for our society and for our world. We need a new model, we need a new understanding, uh, and we need that understanding, that model, to be shaped by Christian thinking, by the Bible as God's word, because the Bible does not build an economy based on selfishness. The Church of Jesus Christ needs to return to its disruptive influence in the world. And by the way, the church throughout history has been exceedingly disruptive on how to deal with the poor, on how to take care of those on the margins of society. Uh, and I could go on and on and on, but that's not the purpose of today. The church needs to regain its calling to be a disruptive influence in society for the kingdom of God. But even in Paul's day, he noted something very important. He says this, uh, he said, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He was criticizing uh, Christians who failed to help, who failed to support, who failed to do anything. And he said, hey, these guys are selfish. They're just going after their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. And a church filled with people who are going after their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ will never disrupt society. In fact, a church filled with people who are going after their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ will conform to society. They will not disrupt society. They will conform to the world. They will not disrupt the world. And therefore, they cannot help the world navigate the treacherous course that it needs to follow in order to come up with an economy, with a society where there is justice, where black lives really do matter, where people really do make a difference. Something needs to happen. And as we look around, and I've mentioned this before the pandemic, we certainly could see across the world that many churches were building their entire ministries based on consumption and selfishness. Looking at them as consumers of church rather than those who are the church who are called to produce a just society as they advance God's kingdom into the world. And so the question is, how do we do this? How do we become this? We've been talking about this, but there is a challenge for us as individuals. There is a challenge for us as individuals, and Jesus lays down that challenge in the passage that we read today. And Jesus is effectively telling us in this passage what is required of us if we are to become God's agent for disruptive influence in the world. 
seeing God's kingdom of love, justice, righteousness, grace, health, holiness go forward. So what is required of us according to Jesus? I'm going to talk about six things here briefly. First, you must have your primary allegiance in life to Jesus. Jesus must be your primary allegiance. Look what he says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying here that we must set aside our primary allegiances to every other person, including and especially those of our own family. We cannot allow any other allegiance but our allegiance to Jesus to limit our freedom of action for Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we abandon our families, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. The word hate here, as everyone probably knows, hopefully knows, is what's called uh, Semitic hyperbole. Uh, In other words, it's making a point by overstating it, by stating it in a strong and shocking way. However, when Jesus uses the word hate, he does not mean psychological hate. He does not mean what we normally think of when we think of hate. But at the same time, he's saying something more than just uh, than just love less than, you know, love your family less than Jesus, love yourself less than Jesus. It's something more. Ultimately, if we have our primary allegiance to Jesus, then he will enable us, empower us to love others as God intends them to love, as God wants us to love them in righteousness and in truth. But Jesus has to be our primary allegiance. The second thing that Jesus says, and by the way, uh, just in case uh, you think this is Jesus speaking here, uh, hopefully I'm very clear about that. Don't get mad at me. If you've got an issue with this, take it to the Lord. Uh, the second thing he says here is that you must reject the primacy of self. Selfishness, self-centeredness. Self-seeking, self-promotion, self-fulfillment. You must reject the primacy of yourself in your life. He says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, from time to time, people will say to me something like, Well, you know, Rod, I don't like this about church. You know, maybe I don't like your sermons or... I don't like the way somebody prays, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. And you know, oftentimes what I do, is I'll look them in the eye, and I'll say, it's not about you. It's not. It's not about what you want. It's not about what you like. Church doesn't exist on your terms. It doesn't exist on my terms. And frankly, I could say that to a lot of pastors, too, that I've talked about. There are a lot of pastors who say, well, I want to make the church this, and I want to make the church that, and I want to make the church... And I'm like, it's not about you. It's not your church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And we've got to get rid of this self-centeredness. 
And we need to bear our cross. And remember, it's a cross. It's supposed to hurt. Crosses were not known to be pain-free. Crosses were not known to be easy. It's not an easy thing to deny yourself. It's not an easy thing to say, I'm not going to make myself the focus of my life. It can be painful. It can be difficult because you are bearing a cross. And you need to remember too, according to Jesus here, you bear your own cross, not anyone else's cross for your journey ahead. The cross that you bear is different than the cross that I'm going to bear. None of us bear exactly the same cross. But I can tell you, every cross hurts. Every cross is difficult. Every cross is part of a journey that we are taking with Jesus. We must deal with our own issues. And we must stop seeking our own interests instead of the interests of Jesus. Ultimately, we follow Jesus in the journey. And if we don't do this, if, if self is on the throne of our lives, we will never be a disruptive influence. We will ultimately capitulate to the influences around us. I talk to a lot of people who say that they think they're free. They're not free. They're just following the world in as subtle a way as they possibly can. The third thing, if we want to be a disruptive influence, we, you must determine to finish what you start. You must determine to finish what you start. Jesus says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, many people start things. Few people finish them. I cannot tell you the number of Christians. Uh, I'm I'm sure that it's well over 10 to 20 uh, over the years, and I, I think well, well over 10 to 20 Christians that I've met who say, oh, I love to start things. I like to start something and then hand it over. I love to start something and then pass it on. But there are very few people who are willing to finish what they start. Another problem that I've often encountered are Christians who come to me who want me to start something. You know, so it's their suggestion, it's what's on their heart, but they think, okay, this is what I'm giving you so you can do it. You can start it and you can finish it. That attitude is not a biblical attitude. It does not reflect what Jesus is saying here. Starting something without finishing it is irresponsible, lazy, and foolish. Irresponsible, lazy, and foolish. We need to count the cost, according to Jesus and determine whatever we, to finish whatever we begin in Jesus. We need to do what we commit to do. And if you can't finish it, don't start it. But if Jesus is calling you to start it, he will enable you to finish it. I mean, there are things in my life that have taken a long time. I mean, we were on the cusp, praise God, of having this building redeveloped. 
Do you know how long City Temple has been struggling to redevelop this building? Longer than I've been here, since uh, about 1995. So 25 years we've been wrestling with this. And 20 years almost since I've been here, uh, that's hard. It's hard to keep going. I tell you, many times I wanted to quit. I wanted to back down. But I know what God has told us to do. And so we move forward to do what God has told us to do. Now remember here, failure is not an issue. Jesus is not talking about failing to finish or messing up along the way uh, or making mistakes along the way. Uh, You know, we're going to fail a lot of times. Jesus is not upset with your failure, not moral failure. That's a different thing. Your sin, Jesus is upset with. But we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to try our best, and sometimes we're going to fall down. And you know what? Jesus is not upset about that because Jesus knew you were going to do that when he called you. He's not upset with us in these things. So it's not about failure. It's not completing what we've started in the Lord. And according to Jesus, not completing what we start leads to shame and injures the cause of Christ. So we need to finish what we start. Number four, and if we don't finish what we start, we will not become disruptive influences. You think of all the times that people have started to change the world, but stopped when it got hard. And I could list a lot of modern day examples uh, even over the last couple of months, but I want to resist that now um, because if people get upset, I want them to be upset with Jesus, not offended by something that I say. Number four, you must determine to persevere in the face of insurmountable odds. You must determine to persevere in the face of insurmountable odds. Here's what Jesus says. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. We've talked about this. Christians know that we're all in a war, if you will, a war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And frankly, a lot of times, I think the world is the most difficult of the three. I mean, we have authority over the, uh, over the devil in Jesus Christ. Nothing to fear there. We've been set free from our sin, so we, we can choose not to let our flesh dominate our lives. But when it comes to the world, it can get kind of complicated there and get rather difficult. And when we're talking about being a disruptive influence, we're talking about disrupting the world. So this is a a battle, but it's a battle of love, not of violence. It's a war of grace, not of hatred. Uh, And we must never, never forget that reality. But we also need to understand that from an earthly perspective, the odds are overwhelmingly stacked against us. When we talk here at City Temple about the 7.5 million people around us within 14, 15 miles of where we are right now in our building, 
uh, 7.5 million who don't know Jesus Christ, and we look at the 20 or so, uh, I almost say, said 20 odd people in the room, but I didn't want to call you all odd. Uh, we look at the 20 or so people gathered here in the room, and then the people on, on gathered by Zoom, and we think, how can this group of people possibly see 7.5 million people come to faith in Christ? How can we possibly, we're talking about the economy, how can we possibly facilitate change in our economy, in our government, uh, in, in our society, in the battle against racism? You know, how can we possibly make a difference dealing, helping to reach out to the poor? What, what can we possibly do? The odds are stacked against us. And if we look based on a, 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 an assessment of what we have, we would probably want to run away from the battle. So what Jesus tells us to do is that we need to deliberate. We need to look at all of this, and our deliberation needs to take into account the call of Jesus on our lives. It needs to take into account the commands of Jesus. It needs to take into account the love of Jesus And, most importantly, it needs to take into account the supremacy of Jesus. See, we're deliberating, but the idea is not to deliberate so we withdraw, but to deliberate so that we will persevere in the battle until we see the victory, so that we will persevere in the face of the overwhelming odds that come against us. We must choose deliberately to engage in this so-called battle, the battle of love, so to see the love and grace of Jesus go into the world, and without a deliberate choice, not only to engage, but also to persevere, to stay the course, to stay in it until the Lord tells us otherwise, we will give up. One of the things that's always been uh, part of my imagination here at, at City Temple has been uh, a number of instances, uh, a number of films, World War II films. I used to watch those a lot when I was a kid. Uh, And there were a lot of classic World War II films where you had a small band of individuals brought together facing an overwhelming uh, enemy, but they persevere uh, uh, and they get through and they come to victory and they make a difference. Uh, and, and, you know, I love that analogy, and I, I really think that that's a lot of what we are called to do. And we need to understand in all of this, uh, many times people read this, and they get down to verse 32, and they, they think that what Jesus is saying here is that, okay, you need to make a deliberation, and then if you realize you're not going to win, then you need to go and sue for peace, uh, almost like it's a suggestion. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, he's not giving us good advice here, don't go into a battle if the odds are stacked against you. Actually, Jesus is challenging us to make a deliberation and go forward in faith and perseverance because we've deliberated on who Jesus is. We know who he is, we know what he's doing, we know what's happening in our lives through Jesus Christ. What Jesus is doing with verse 32, he is warning us We will give up if we fail to make a deliberate choice to stay and persevere to the end. If you don't make the deliberate choice 
you will come to a point in time where you feel like the odds are so overwhelmingly large that you can succeed that you will give up. And I have seen countless Christians and churches give up in the battle because they thought the battle was too great. I've seen countless individuals give up in the battle where they end up committing suicide or they fall away from Jesus in depression or despair because they fail to say, I'm going to persevere and I'm going to persevere to the end and no matter how great the odds are, Jesus is walking with me. And if Jesus is walking with us, we shall persevere. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us to ask for peace. He's telling us don't give up. Know what resources you have. And even though you might have an army of 10,000 and the other guy has an army of 20,000, you're going to win if you persevere. Number five. Fifth thing that Jesus is telling us here, if we want to be part of God's disruptive plan in this world, is that we must renounce all other goals for our lives except that that Jesus has for us. We must renounce every other goal for our life. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, I, I believe Jesus here with this is referring to our worldly possessions, but he's also referring to things like what's your hope, what's your dream, what's your plan, what's your goal. It's not that these things are bad. It's not that Jesus is saying, you know, uh, get rid of it all and just be poor. He's not saying go sell your house or go sell your car, uh, go sell your bicycle. Go sell your clothes, quit your job, uh, and go out wandering the streets preaching the gospel. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying these things at all. He is saying that word renounce here is the key one. It means to assign what we have to a certain cause. So Jesus' challenge here is that we must assign everything we are and everything we have to Jesus' kingdom cause as followers of Jesus. We must grant everything we have and everything we are to that kingdom cause. Apologies. Following Jesus requires everything you have. It's not a commitment. It's not a sacrifice. I mean, for many years, we like the language of sacrifice. It is biblical language, by the way. We also like the commitment, the language of commitment. That's biblical language. But you know what? When we talk about commitment or sacrifice, you kind of choose what you sacrifice. And many of us have that attitude where we put something behind our back and say, here, Jesus, take what I have here. Take this. And Jesus says, no, I don't really want that. I want what you got behind your back. And so it's just best to keep it all up front. So we surrender what we have. Following Jesus requires everything you have as a complete surrender to his purposes. And that takes a lot of trust. You've got to believe that Jesus is good and that Jesus loves you and that Jesus intends good for your life because that is exactly what he does. 
But sometimes it doesn't seem that way initially. And so we have to trust him and we have to follow him. Number six, the last thing here that we have to do if we're going to be part of God's disruptive team called the church, if we're going to be agents for disruption in our society, in our workplace, and I'm talking about righteous disruption here, you know that, in our workplace, in our homes, in our families, in our communities. Number six, you must refuse to be half-hearted. You must refuse half-heartedness. Here's what Jesus says. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The seasoning influence of salt here is the focus of Jesus. It's the influence that salt has on other things. So Jesus is talking about the influence that we have on other things. And so if we are half-hearted, we become like influence-less salt that is worthless. If salt doesn't influence your food, making it taste better, it's worthless. The influence of salt is paramount, and your influence is paramount. And you cannot have a positive, disruptive influence in your world if you're half-hearted about Jesus, if you're half-hearted about your commitment. God has intended and determined that we as his people would have a good influence in the world. That's God's purpose for us, to have a good influence, just like the influence of salt on food tends to be good. He wants us to have a good influence on the world. And by the way, this do, it doesn't matter who you are or what you think about yourself. I know most Christians I talk to, uh, they don't think of themselves as influencers. They don't think of themselves as important. Many of them think that they're hidden away, that, that nothing they do really matters. I can guarantee you that's not the case. Now, I won't be able to show you every example of how your life matters. I can't show you the examples of how my life matters. There have been some conversations that I've had with people that I didn't know until 10 or 20 years later how influential that conversation was on someone. There's a couple that I know that is about to go to a full-time missionary service in one of the former Soviet republics, that's a Muslim majority, that will rename, remain nameless, uh, that the reason that they are in ministry and the reason that they are missionaries comes down to a conversation that I had with this guy back in about 1989, 1990. And I didn't even know the conversation made any difference until about 1999, 2000. And he reminds me of the difference one conversation has made. Now, he's already served with his wife as missionaries. Uh, and just think, all the different people that are going to come to Jesus Christ because of one conversation that I had no idea made any difference. Just imagine how many conversations and how many incidents in your life could have the same kind of impact. You might not ever know it. 
But I tell you, if you're half-hearted about your life, about your relationship with Jesus Christ, it won't happen. And if you compromise yourself, if you compromise with the world, if you compromise with your flesh, if you compromise with the devil, then you will lose your influence for Jesus in the world. And we will become useless. So Jesus is giving us very clear instruction here. He's given us very clear guidance about how to become the people of disruptive influence that he desires us to be. But we must pay attention. Notice what he says. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That means listen and do something about it. You can't remain static. You can't remain complacent. If you do, you have already lost. You've already capitulated. You've already given up. We need to understand as well that God has already given you and me, all of us, everything we need to succeed in what he's called us to do. We've been saved by grace through faith. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ where we are sons of God. We are saints. We are holy ones. God's grace is on us all the time, 100%. There's never a moment of your life that's not surrounded by God's grace, especially when you sin, especially when you mess up. God's grace is there to forgive you and to cleanse you. God has determined good for our lives. We have that sovereign God determination to bring good into our lives. God's already given that. God has empowered us already by His Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us, and we have the Spirit of God who will come upon us to empower us to ministry. God has given us everything and continues to give us everything to succeed. It's not a work by us. It's really just cooperating with God by surrendering to Him through Jesus Christ. And if you're listening to this and you think, you know, Rod, I've already compromised, I've already messed up, uh, I've already capitulated in so many ways, I want to tell you, it's not too late. You can still repent if you've just seen your sin or maybe how you've uh, had negligence in your life with Christ. You can turn away from that. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And you know the promise of the cross is that he will forgive you. Jesus can restore you. No, salt can't restore its own saltiness. But you know what? Jesus could restore your saltiness. Even if you feel like you've lost your salty influence, he can restore it. If you are alive, and I'm assuming if you're listening to this that you're alive, if you are alive, there's still time there's still time. But now is the time to make your choice and take your stand for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the love that you've shown us in your son Jesus. Thank you that that love never leaves us or forsakes us, even as you never leave us or forsake us. We honor you. We worship you, we praise you, we love you, 
and we thank you for all that you've done in our lives and all that you continue to do. Thank you, Lord, for being such an amazing God who loves us and who never leaves us, who will continue with us along this journey of disruption. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that. I had to figure out what was going <laughs> in terms of the live stream. Oh, all these wonderful things to do.